I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate or bookmark our Amazon link. Any order made via this link will contribute a small percentage to the Be Here Now Network at no extra cost to you. For this latest installment in the Be Here Now Network's guest podcast, Gil Fronsdahl, author, meditation teacher, and former student of Jack Cornfield. Gil speaks about the concept of self and non-self in this talk recorded at the Insight Meditation Center, where Gil is a co-teacher. For all the teachings of non-self, anatta, in Buddhism, there is also the concept of the great self, Mahatma. What is the relationship between being spiritually awake and the concept of self? Gill explains that early Buddhist tradition did not try to answer the question of who am I initially. Instead, it raises other questions such as what is freedom? What is it to be psychologically and spiritually free from the shackles of our own mind? The beginning of wisdom is recognizing that our mental traps exist in the first place. Enjoy this talk with Gil 
and stay tuned for more from the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. Good morning. Can people hear okay? Loud enough out there? So, yes, so happy Mother's Day. The... um, there's a long tradition in Buddhism of, uh, of uh, saying that the wisdom is the mother of all Buddhas, that uh, the Buddha had a mother and was wisdom. So for all the wisdom of all the mothers and women and generations who've helped us all out, thank you for that. So also interesting, maybe, I don't know if it interests you, but um, the... Um, this word that's very important in our tradition, sati, usually translated as mindfulness, in the Pali language, it's a feminine word. So, have you ever wondered about the gender of what you're doing? <laughs> so, one of the important teachings or insights of uh, Buddhism has been that into what's called not-self. And it's a teaching which uh, has confused a lot of people. What self realizes not-self, for example. And, um, and I want to read you a passage from a, a kind of academic article by a European scholar, a woman named Joy Manet. And... Um, she was at a conference where some therapists were confused by, by this issue as well. At a recent conference, whose theme was the psychology of awakening, Buddhism, science, and psychotherapy, many of the participants expressed their confusion regarding how the Buddha could function in the world without a self. Because they were Buddhists, they were trying to follow the teaching and to achieve or to imitate what they imagined this form of functioning could be. I thought they had missed the point. What the early texts show in the character of the Buddha is someone with a very advanced self-concept. His self-esteem is perfect. He has gone beyond doubt. He knows. He is confident of his knowledge. He expresses himself with conviction. When the Buddha talks of himself in the first person, he does so with clarity. He has a strong sense of identity and knows very well who he is. He gives accounts of his life experiences in the first person. Um, He gives accounts of his spiritual capacities in the first person. That is, he announces and proclaims that he is a Buddha and says what a Buddha is. He gives first-person accounts of the capacities required of him by society. That is, he insists that he is a competent debater. He discusses at ease and full equality with kings and other notables. He defends himself and his teachings against unjust accusations and false representations. It is clear that the Buddha's self, as this concept is understood in contemporary psychology and psychotherapy, namely a clear sense of identity, the ability to function competently and realistically in the world, to have a standard of ethics, to achieve one's goals, to interact with people, to make good choices, and so forth, was fully functional and remarkably well-developed, as one would expect. Neither psychotherapy nor meditation is possible unless the sense of identity or ego is mature and well-grounded. Otherwise, there is nothing to change, nothing to go beyond. 
So the idea of a, the Buddha as a confident individual, self-assured, capable in the world, clear sense of who he is, who he was, and never clue who he was in relationship to other people, uh, does go against uh, the notion that some people have about the goal of practice that's meant to make us uh, self-effacing, that um, kind of soft, accepting, not really there, kind of, you know, um, so empty that, that um, you know, everything goes, everything's fine, you're not troubled by anything. And here you have someone who is, uh, comes across, the way Joey Manet talks about him, as, um, and I would concur, based on the, what I've read in the suttas, of someone who um, is certainly not uh, self-effacing, certainly not um, very present and engaged and uh, self-confident, but it's also someone who is liberated. So the question is, what is the relationship between being spiritually awake or spiritually liberated and, and this whole concept of self that many of us wonder about or struggle with? It's considered one of the great personal and philosophical psychological issues to come to terms with what is self, who are, who are we? I think that uh, in this early tradition, uh, the question, who am I? or what is the, yourself, is not the starting point, not the question that the uh, tradition tries to answer. Um, instead, it tries to answer some other questions. And one of the questions, I think, maybe it's not explicit in the text, but maybe it's for our purposes we can raise it, is uh, what is freedom? What is it to be psychologically or spiritually free or awake? And the contrast for freedom is to be caught up. I think in the ancient world, they use the, the language of being enslaved, being in chains, chained down. The, um, so, and not, not enslaved or in chains by the world around us, but rather by the uh, functioning of our own minds with our fears, our desires, our hates, and to be caught in the vice of our preoccupations so that there is no freedom of movement within us. And if we look at the movement, you know, the possibility of freedom, and in doing that see our, how we're caught, that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of a very important movement in Buddhism. Uh, it's been said sometimes there are three great movements about kind of resolving the issue of self. One movement is to is kind of a, uh, to a movement of regression, to move back into some kind of pre, you know, I don't know verbal, but some kind of um, you know childhood notion of of uh, innocence where everything is fine and wonderful, or to take or, to reg- or kind of regress or take refuge in something that feels infinitely. Uh, pleasant and enjoyable where there's no problems, kind of in a cocoon. And I've known people who have had very traumatic lives and their way of coping with it has been to uh, pull back away from the world and their difficulties and take refuge in um, kind of altered states of consciousness or states of quite disassociated or removed, sometimes where there's a lot of bliss, a lot of feeling of emptiness and separation. And... uh, but there's no wisdom there. It's mostly receding into something. It's a pleasure, safe place. That's one way. 
The other way is to uh, find or claim that there is some real essential self, like a soul, a permanent abiding true thing, that, and that becomes a place of security, a refuge, a, a place. And again, if there's a lot of insecurity in a person's life, it can be very reassuring to finally kind of log, log, uh, lock to a clear sense of strong identity, this is who I am. And so we have religious traditions that will emphasize that. We have to realize the true nature of self and, the, and who the true self is. The Buddhist approach is neither of those two, but is rather to uh, cultivate and develop a strong sense of self, a strong capacity, uh, inner capacity. The, the um, ancient tradition does have the phrase to develop a strong self and to make the self an island, to make a self a refuge for yourself. The ancient Buddha did, wasn't shy about using the word self for all the teachings of not-self, the word self was used. You make, make an island of yourself, become a great self. They use the word great self, um, which is nowadays uh, we know it as Mahatma, the Mahatma Gandhi. That title means a great Gandhi, the great self. And um, <clears throat> so to develop oneself, but in the process of doing it, uh, uh, acquire wisdom and understanding about uh, how we get caught and what's on the other side of being caught, how to be uncaught. So this uh, movement, this third movement of Buddhism, is, uh, requires us to begin understanding how it is we get caught, what goes on in our minds, not to recede away from that, be protected from it, or not to kind of, not to ignore that in some way so that we can, um, um, you know, hold on to something, but really to understand the fears, insecurities, the attachments, the concerns by which we hold on to something really strongly. And if we're caught and understand how we're caught, and then we can let go of that or overcome it, then we're someone who is no longer caught in the vice of self, no longer, you know, trying to prove something, conceit, in a variety of ways. And then the question is, what is self? Who are you? Uh, has a different emphasis, a different importance in a person's life. Because if you're now free from being anybody, maybe it doesn't matter who you are in some kind of essential way. Or you don't have to protect yourself away from the conventional ways in which we are in the world. So, an important part of this Buddhist tradition, and part of the function of something like mindfulness and meditation, is not to go in the rapid approach into the deep states of bliss and calm, and you know, but rather to uh, go into it, certainly in its own due time, but to do so in the process of doing that, and with that as a support, begin understanding uh, what the mind does, how we limit ourselves um, by the ideations, the attachments, the ideas that we have. So sometimes it's easy to see uh, how this operates, in a, but sometimes it's easier to see it, it kind of almost externally. Uh, some of us, probably most of you, have had the experience of someone seeing you in a limited way, seeing you as you know, in some category, because if you're seeing you only through the profession or seeing you only through the lens of something you did once upon a time. And that's, you know, they, they, that they limit you by that, that thing. Or sometimes by, you know, you're someone's spouse, and so they're seen through that lens and they can't see you beyond that. Um, or your ethnicity, or your class, or your race, or something. The kind of people, you know, are limited by how people are, you know, people limit you. 
And sometimes you really feel that limitation. It doesn't feel good to kind of be put in a box. It's also sometimes easy to see how other people do that for themselves. Uh, sometimes I kind of just wanted to shake people, you know, shake it out of them because they're it's so clear that they've restricted uh, their sense of self, their self-concept, in such a dramatic way that they're really, you know, you know, boxed in a prison almost of self-concept, self-ideas. One of the ones that I, I, I just finished teaching a retreat, seven-day retreat, and the one that I saw repeatedly among a number of the people at the retreat was the, uh, this self-concept that they're not good enough. And, um, and I was really made, impressed how deeply embedded in the psyche was this notion, this con- conviction that I'm not good enough. This is the nature of the universe was built so that I could exist as someone who's not good enough. It's like, you know, this is like locked in, the operating system of the universe. And, um, and if you uh, scratch, the, uh, scratch the surface, you go into, you know, where that comes from. Uh, some of them it was really clear right, uh, that um, uh, it was something they learned from their parents. Very critical parents who kind of actually told them, you're not good enough. Uh, some of them, uh, they, they, their form was, yes, you did great, you got an A, but you needed to get an A+. You're not good enough unless you get an A+. And so they grew up with this idea of never good enough, never good enough, never can live up to the standards of their, uh, of their parents. And then some, some of the people I talked to was because of their, uh, their religious upbringing. They had a certain religious uh, environment where the, the lesson was so powerful was um, that, uh, you know, it's somehow you're not holding up to some kind of standard that you're expected to do. Uh, and sometimes it's because the situation in growing up was so difficult for people, uh, so painful, and, uh, and then they internalize the, the cause of that pain. Uh, young children often will take responsibility for things which are not their own. I once, when I was six years old, brought a pole back to my neighborhood, and a long, I don't know how long, to me it seemed like a long pole, and um, there was a, so later in the day, some adult picked up that pole and tried to pole vault over a little picket fence. And uh, in the process of doing that, he broke his leg. And um, I was to blame. You know, obviously, you know, I caused that. I brought that pole. So it's a six-year-old mind, you know, cause and effect. So it's easy to kind of say, not good enough, I'm responsible, I'm bad. And so these, these, these things sometimes get locked in at a very early age. And um, or when I was in seventh grade, um, it, didn't, it never caused me any suffering, this one, but because I just took it as true. Um, I was at uh, an art class, and I was drawing, and the art teacher came over to me and said, uh, you have no artistic ab- ab- ability. <laughs> and since I didn't care whether I had or not, you know, it wasn't, I had no identity around that, you know, particularly, it didn't matter to me. Um, but she was the authority, so it must be true. So I just put on that piece of clothing, and uh, happily, I didn't, you know, still didn't care, uh, but I just, that's the, one of the self-concepts that I carried with me into, um, uh, into uh, being a freshman in college. And, um, and then I was, I, my roommate in college was a born-again artist, and, uh, and so uh, by the end of the school year, he had converted me. <laughs> and, um, and it turned out I had some artistic ability. And so, um, so then I remember, remembered how well, you know, one of the reasons I didn't pick up a, a pencil to draw was because of this teacher, what she told me. 
So this idea of being limited, it's, it's, so it's much harder to, to see it for oneself, to see how we limit ourselves. And part of the function of meditation practice is to help us to see that. And, and the unfortunate part of seeing that, more often than not, is we, we see it uh, in how we hurt. That a lot of the suffering and pain that people experience uh, has its a, a, a connection to our self-concept that we're carrying with us. Uh, it plays out in a variety of ways. The concept we have that's threatened, the concept that we have that we're trying to prove to the world, the concept that we have that can be frustrated, the concept that we have that um, um, that's not being supported by others, um, the um, the idea that we want to be seen by other people it isn't just the concept that we have for ourselves, but there can be a tremendous amount of social gymnastics that goes on to try to ensure that other people see us the way we want to be seen. It's been said that uh, many some people spe- uh, are uh, are more careful with. Uh, how they, uh, the clothes they choose to dress in than the words they speak because of this idea of, you know, the, the clothes, you know, kind of you're presenting yourself to the world, people you're seeing you in a certain way. So this is the bad news about Buddhism, is that uh, part of Buddhism is, it, is this honest, honest assessment, honest looking at yourself and seeing how all this works. But not to, uh, you know, rub salt in a wound or make it worse, and this is we have to be very careful in Buddhism when we kind of have this honest looking at ourselves, that we understand that the context for that looking is one of caring, of compassion, of uh, of kindness to the, and also the sense of possibility. And part of the possibility is to dwell in the world with confidence, with efficacy, with strength, as the Buddha did. In fact, it's been uh, some some people who've studied uh, the teachings of the Buddha have described it as a path of power because of uh, the tremendous self-confidence and, uh, and strength that's cultivated and developed along this path. The, um, um, and, you know, the Buddha was explicit about the cultivation of bala, of power. So it's a little bit different than the idea of kind of being, you know, kind of empty and not really there. Perhaps someone who's free is really there in a powerful way. It's a sense of presence is quite strong. The um, one way that uh, uh, the early tradition talks about self or chitta or the mind is that the mind can become boundless. That there doesn't have to be any limitations on our sense of self. It doesn't have to be any limitations on on. Um, on the mind or awareness. And when there's no limitation, maybe we don't have to be anything for anybody. There's nothing to prove anymore. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a strength in that presence. So I think the part of the reason this is important, this idea, is that if we don't understand that strength and presence, strength and presence, strength of capacity, and developing ourselves an important part of the tradition, it's possible to overlook that side. And uh, sometimes when uh, Buddhist practice is is offered or presented mostly as acceptance, accepting yourself in a deep way, everything's okay about you, you're fine, you are enough. You're so enough, you don't have to do anything. Just accept yourself and everything everything will be wonderful that then uh, there is no development of strength, of inner core. And then perhaps you just keep need to be reassured over and over again. 
or put in a situation where everything is safe, where you can kind of accept. But it isn't just a matter of, 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 of you know, having a safe environment. Buddhist practice is help. We want to we want to be able to cultivate ourselves so we are uh, we our safety is portable, that we carry it with us. Because I think it's unrealistic to expect that we can go into the world and always have it a safe place. But we can be we can bring our safety with us, and part of that is uh, our inner strength, our capacities that we cultivate and develop. Uh, part of it is our uh, self-understanding that we bring with us. Part of it certainly is our ability to let go of ways in which we get caught and hold on. And part of it is our ability to have empathy and clarity and be able to communicate in effective ways. So, you know, one of the remarkable things when you read these ancient suttas is when the Buddha was challenged by people, uh, and he often was, uh, he seemed to be unfazed by that challenge. He seemed, But he seemed to be very direct and involved in the challenge, but he seemed to stay peaceful and free in the middle of it. One of the aspects of um, uh, this teachings of not-self or connected to it is the teachings around conceit. Self and conceit maybe can be seen as two different things, but part of the function of the path of practice is to lower the flag of conceit. And um, so, you know, holding up your flag and say, look at me, this is who I am, um, is a form of suffering. And it certainly can be suffering for you, and too often it's suffering for other people as well. <laughs> or, or at least an irritation. The, um, but to lower, lower the flag of conceit. And so, how, so what, you know, what's that juxtaposition of having a strong sense of confidence without it being conceit? Some people are afraid of being confident because it can look like conceit, and the last thing you want to do in a Buddhist community is to have conceit, you know, stand out in some way. But I think that um, being willing to be yourself uh, in a confident way is a result of doing this practice. And one of the, I think it's Jack Kornfield who said, the more mature a person becomes in this practice, the more eccentric they become. So, you know, we don't advertise that. No one would come. <laughs> come and be eccentric. Making more people. <laughs> and, the, um, and I think what's implied by this idea is not that you're know, supposed to be you know, eccentric in a crazy way or something, but the eccentric in the sense that you become more yourself and more completely yourself. Um, and, uh, and maybe some of you, you know, actually in, would be naturally more eccentric if you just allowed yourself. Uh, you weren't trying to fit in and be nice and have no one criticize you and be safe and protected. Uh, you know, you would be more, more, you know, expressive or different in some way. And that's, that's certainly my hope of Buddhist practice in a community like this, that everyone can just be more themselves it can, and it's hard whenever you're in a community to be that completely because the community has certain kind of, you know, ideas of how you're supposed to be. And, and then people are kind of looking, how am I supposed to be here? And what's accepted? And what's approved of? And, you know, and then they look towards the teacher for what's the right way. And heaven forbid, they look, heaven forbid they look at me, you know, to see how you're supposed to be. And yeah, I'm eccentric enough. I'm kind of an odd guy, I think. 
the um, so the idea is to kind of you know find out what limits you and if you're looking towards someone else about how to be um, is it supportive for you to do that sometimes it is supportive you see someone else and you're inspired by that oh, I can be that way too or you know this is meaningful for me now I can be that way because I see that it's allowable or, I mean, or and sometimes you see how you look towards other people and it actually kind of narrows you and makes you smaller in the process so how do you you know what goes on this has to do again the self-understanding always come back what goes on in my mind what are my interests what are motivations what are my reactions what's going on here so we become our own teacher so we can understand how all this works without the wisdom of that um, I think there is no possibility or freedom some people want a freedom that's kind of handed, handed on a silver platter some of the idea of instant enlightenment the big bang theories of enlightenment um, uh, more often have to do with a wish that uh, of sidestepping all the the whole process of self-understanding to understand how clinging works, how attachment works, how selfing works, and just going to get to the other side without any, you know, having to do any work. And this, this slow process of self-understanding is very, very important. So, um, one of the possibilities in, in relationship to the sense of self is to develop this stronger self, what we can call self-understanding, in the sense that we understand what our reactions are, we understand what our emotional life is, we understand what our thoughts are, we understand what our beliefs are, we understand what, uh, how we see other people and, and our response, reaction to other people. And there's a tremendous amount of understanding of the details of how all this stuff works in this psychophysical being that's here. And in a conventional way, we realize very clearly that if I have an itch, it's my itch. If I have an itch, I don't scratch someone else. Or if I pee, if I need to pee, I don't ask you to do it. You know, some things you have to, you know, you understand where, you know, there's a self-reflective understanding of where the domain of responsibility is, where the domain of experience is. That doesn't disappear. Um... However, what can happen is that the sense of boundary, the sense of, uh, of fixity around that self-reflection can disappear. So that um, uh, uh, nothing sticks, or it's just open and porous. So the sense of awareness, sense of presence, sense of beingness, uh, doesn't have anything, any place that, you know, that's... Uh, congealed, that's static, but rather it's open and fluid. And so, you know, it's kind of like the, maybe like the uh, playground thing, you know, sticks and stones cannot, sticks and stones, how's it going? I don't remember anymore. (laughs) They can break my bones, but words can never, can never, never, never hurt me or never touch me. So there's an understanding that certain things, words, what people say, many of the experiences in the world, <clears throat> and <clears throat> can't touch me, which I think is the Latin meaning of the word integrity. Isn't that interesting? To have integrity is to have something that can't be touched. So to not be touchable, so in, not because there's some core essence of who we are that's protected, but rather because there is no core essence that we can find and whatever happens to us doesn't land anywhere. 
just goes through. It doesn't stick anywhere. The, um, one of the exercises I sometimes will give people when I'm meeting with them is um, they're talking about some difficulty they have in the world, and I, I kind of hold up my hand flat in kind of vertical way, and I say, there's two ways that this thing in the world can, can approach you, reach you. One way is it can reach you and hit you like a wall. It hits something inside of you. The other thing is that it just goes right through. It doesn't hit anything. So when you're having trouble with this issue in the world, I ask them, what is it it's striking inside of you? What's, what does it hit inside of you? And this is part of, again, part of the thrust of Buddhist practice to take responsibility for where it hits. What's the reaction? What's going on here? And uh, oftentimes, it's very easy for us to blame the world outside for our reaction. So for a very simple one was you say, you made me angry. <laughs> no one makes us angry. Uh, you know, uh, someone who's has the self-confidence of a Buddha, perhaps, someone who's fully here in a strong way uh, and knows themselves well, uh, will not blame anyone else for being angry. The, uh, that person might have created the conditions for your anger, but if you're really p- very present and have the self-understanding, you see that someone did something, said something, that experience was received in your body and mind in some way that was, uh, to make it very simple, usually more complicated than this, but what was deeply unpleasant. And in that unpleasant, we want to fix it, we want to get rid of it, we want to push it away. And we react, to, and these, our reaction to the unpleasant feelings we have, that's the cause of the anger. The person, what the person said, was the, was the condition for the strong, unpleasant feeling the motivated response of anger is our reaction to the unpleasant sensations we have. If we can feel the unpleasantness as unpleasant in an open, mindful way, it doesn't have to translate to being angry. It can translate to a response of trying to take care of it in a responsible way, but it doesn't have to be anger. So here we have a two, you know, two-part step, or three parts. You know, Someone says something, strong, unpleasant feeling, and then anger from us, as opposed to a two-part step, someone said something, anger. If it's a two-part step, it's easy to blame the person. If it's a three-part step that goes through you, through this unpleasant step, it's harder to blame the other person. Make sense? So, so, um, so this idea, you know, what, it, what does it strike inside of you? And so sometimes what it strikes, the world, is it strikes our self-identity, the idea, the concept, how we want to represent ourselves to ourselves. So when some of these people this last retreat who had this very strong feeling that they're not enough, um, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I, I remember telling one, you are enough. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I don't know if I said it that way, but I said, you know, that's not true. Though. That's not a useful statement. You know, I kind of said something like that. I forget what it was. It was wiser than what I... <laughs> it was wiser what I'm telling you, but because I, I don't remember what I said. <laughs> it's certainly, certainly wiser than that. But for the purposes of the teaching today, <laughs> said, you know, you are enough. And, um, and, and that was met with resistance. You know, you know, 
so met with resistance in no way I'm not going to accept that pushing that back on me no. you don't understand so what is it so, so they say what is what is things meet inside of you and what happens if there's nothing inside of you that meets it nothing hard nothing fixed just let the experience of the world people say in some ways go right through or that's just one way it's a metaphor doesn't it or a metaphor just dwelling just it's there in space empty and ex- expansive what happens if our mind is so big and so spacious there's room for everything if our mind is contracted and claustrophobic and something comes along then it has a jostleful space inside of us and things have to kind of you know are threatened but if our awareness is really big and spacious um, not so much so that we then become vacant people, but then other capacities that we have can respond to the situation. If we're tight, if we're stuck, if we're contracted, then the capacities to respond become much more limited. If we become relaxed, at ease, our creativity becomes stronger. If we become relaxed and at ease, our empathy is more available. If we have relaxed and at ease, then we have more, more easy access to our wisdom and our common sense to the situation. So if, if a strong, attached idea of self, self-clinging, is like a fist, it, it has its usefulness, a strong, contracted sense of self, idea of self, just like a fist has a usefulness in a certain situations. But a fist, you know, often how it's used is not so helpful to others, you know, and it's kind of frightening to see someone going around with a fist, but it still might have its use. And um, when my kids were small, one of the not good uses of a fist was to uh, play the game of them trying to pray, pry my fingers apart. And that somehow that was lots of fun for them. <laughs> and, um, but the, um, but the, um, but once the hand is open, the hand is much more useful. It can be used for many, many things. It can be, uh, you know, you can pick something up in a way you can't if you keep it in a fist. Uh, you could shake someone's hand. You can stroke someone at the back of a child's head. You can uh, feel the breeze against the hand. The soft, sensitive part of the hand can feel many more things. There's so much more that you can do than if the hand, the fist is protected in the fist. So the same thing with this tight, constricted sense of self is that it limits us as the constriction releases and we don't have to be any particular kind of self. We don't have to be anybody for anything, for anybody. We have to be anybody for anybody. Then uh, uh, it's like the open hand. Who we are becomes much more fluid, flexible, available, multifunctional. So much more is possible in that kind of state. And in that possibility, if you're someone who's developed a path, you become someone who becomes self-confident, someone who becomes capable and strong in a variety of ways. Uh, even though, the last thing I'll say is that, so there's kind of a juxtaposition because of the maybe difficulty of language or my difficulty with language is that it's, you could almost say the person has someone who's well-developed in this practice has a very strong sense of self without there being a self there. So 
if you emphasize one side of that statement more than the other, then you get the wrong impression. But if you hold them together, I think you get closer to the right impression of how this is. So if ever you get confused again or hear someone confused about this not-self teaching in Buddhism, um, I hope this talk clarifies it or offers you a different perspective that... Um, that we are, we do have a strong functional self uh, in this practice, but it's one that's free. Okay, so maybe we have a couple of minutes. Uh, I'm curious if there's any questions, or protests. <laughs> More like a comment. Um, you talked a little bit about conceit, fear of conceit because of the self. I always saw conceit as a sign of insecurity. Good will not, be. Not of strength. Because if, if you have the kind of sense of self that you were talking about, you don't need to convince anybody else about how smart, wonderful, whatever you are. Yeah, yeah it's possible. I mean, I've seen a lot of, lot of conceit, which is insecurity for sure. Um, but I've seen people who just seem to be incredibly arrogant um, and, and secure in their arrogance, and secure in themselves. <laughs> and and usually, usually, usually it's the peop- usually it's, uh, people I'm thinking of are, are people who are um, really smart. Not all smart people right this way, but I've known people who have been really smart, really capable, and, um, and have this inner self-confidence that it's kind of arrogance. Everyone else doesn't count because they know what's going on. They couldn't care less about other people. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're secure enough. Uh, so I've seen that as well. But, you know, you could say maybe deep down inside there's been security, but I haven't seen it in them. You know, but uh, you're right. Often that's the case. What's also interesting is, um, you know, I think many of you know this already, but it's worth saying that in Buddhism there's three kinds of conceit. There's the conceit that you're better than others. There's a conceit that uh, there's, uh, uh, that you're worse than others or less than others. And there's a conceit that you're equal to others. And um, all, of them, all of them have to do with playing the self game. And you have to, and in fact, sometimes people who are extremely shy paradoxically have a very strong sense of self. The stronger the shyness, the more the sense of self is quite strong, self identity. It just takes that, this particular form uh, around, you know, that shyness. And um, so then the question is, what's the alternative from seeing yourself as better, worse, or equal to others? And the alternative is, don't think any of them. <laughs> you know, live your life without having to compare yourself to other people. Don't play the comparison game. Just be there. And then I'll end with, um, at this retreat that was at, John Travis read a, qu- a quote. One of the teachers read this quote. It was something like, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking less about yourself. Spending less time thinking about yourself. Okay, so um, thank you all very much. And so we have this uh, wonderful fair that uh, people in our community who volunteer at different things um, uh, in the community, wider community have set up these tables and they're available to talk. And, um, and uh, don't think that they're trying to recruit you. Uh, 
show up with enough self-confidence that, <laughs> and, and sure it in yourself that you don't have to worry about if they are. Just be there because it's, 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 just, it's just very interesting to see what they do and find out you know, what makes them, you know, what attracts them to that work. And so please uh, look around and see what our community does. Thank you.